Hey everybody, welcome to this special edition episode of the Running Rogue podcast. As promised, I'm doing a separate and hopefully not too long recap of what happened at the London Marathon this past weekend. It was an epic event and one that I think got the running world excited because it has been such a long time since we've been able to cheer on the elites in the marathon. And really for, I guess, us Americans, it was back in the end of February on Leap Day, February 29th, when we got to get excited about the elite world racing the marathon. And so here we are again with another elite race in London. And it was everything we would have wanted and more. So there's lots to recap, lots to cover. I've got, I won't go so much into a breakdown of what happened. That's well documented. You can go watch the replays if you'd like on NBC Sports Gold. You can also read all of the great recaps that have been floating around the internet. But instead, I'm just going to kind of go point by point and make some points about my takeaways from the race, things that I noticed and got excited about as I watched the replay myself. I did not watch it live because I'm too old for that. I value my sleep too much. But I did watch the replays and they were certainly exciting races on both sides. So we'll give I'll give you my takeaways for this special edition recap and and then we'll go from there. So first of all, we have to take our hats off and give a massive kudos to the organizers of the London Marathon for pulling this event off and doing it in a safe way. I thought that this was possible back in April and May when we were learning about whether races would be happening or not. London is the only event that was able to pull it off. I thought it might be Berlin. I thought potentially Boston could have an elite race. New York could have an elite race. But London was the only one to pull it off. And so we have to tip our hats to them for making it happen. And I'm sure it was no small feat of logistics. There were a lot of layers to their protections, but it seemed like they had everything nicely buttoned up. Athletes had to, first of all, show a negative coronavirus test before departing their home country. And so you had to be tested within four days of showing up to London. That was okay for all but one athlete. The athlete that I picked to finish third in the women's race, Azamira, unfortunately tested positive with her coach. Haji Adilo, who also happens to be the coach of the men's winner. Both of them had to stay home based on those positive tests. Then everybody was retested in London before they entered the the bubble. And the organizers had a hotel that was entirely dedicated to those as a part of the race that was just outside of London. And so they had to be retested in order to get into the bubble. And then from what I understand, they were retested several times inside the bubble leading up to the race just to make sure everything was good. From my understanding, there were no other positive tests. Once people showed up to the bubble and everything was was smooth from that perspective, but in spite of having negative tests, athletes still had to practice social distancing, still had to wear masks on the property when outside of their rooms. And from what I understand, that was enforced pretty rigorously. Also, athletes were wearing what the British athletes were calling a bump, which was a uh, basically a signaling mechanism that you wore around your neck 
that would go off and set off an alarm if you got too close to someone else who was wearing a bump. So it was a safety mechanism essentially to remind people to stay appropriately distanced from each other. So they had all of that in place. Plus, obviously, they had the closed course, the just over 2K course that would be run 19 times in order to make the race happen with no spectators. And they did everything from a hydration standpoint, from volunteer standpoint to make this thing safe. And by all accounts, they pulled it off. And so hats off to London for making it happen. It was an amazing race, an amazing event to watch. I think cool for the fans to be able to see this the way it was produced. So also credit to them for organizing the separate women's race so that when that was going, you could focus entirely on that instead of having the split screen or having them switch back and forth forth and potentially missing key moves. And so that allowed us to really focus our energy on each of the individual races and give it their proper due. Although there was a small complaint that NBC cut away from the women's race during the key move there. But I think overall, from a production standpoint, everybody was solid. Credit to NBC. Their announcing team with Dina Caster and Amy Hastings Craig. Amy Hastings Craig was top notch and seemed to be finally really appropriate to the level of athlete that was out there racing on the course. A lot of good insights from the announcers. So all in all, everything was pulled off smoothly and kudos to London organizing team. Kudos to NBC for making it happen. Kudos to all of the athletes that were willing to, and some of them on short notice, make this happen. And of course, go through all the hurdles that they had to do in order to make it happen, which weren't easy. So just so many things about this were amazing. And I think it showed for the fans in that there seemed to be the engagement that you would hope for, for an event like this. And that was just fun and heartwarming to see. You know, we've, we've gotten a lot of great engagement and a lot of creative races that have happened through the pandemic from the intra squad meet that Bowerman put on to the meets that they've been putting on in Portland to creative races all over the place. And we've seen a ton of energy around those. And it seemed like this was really one of the first examples of the very, very pinnacle of the sport happening in a semi-normal fashion. And it was great to see the engagement around it. Everybody seemed super excited. There seemed to be a lot of people, judging by my Twitter feed after I woke up, that actually tuned in in the States live, which is impressive. So hats off to all of those fans that were able to watch it live and that sacrificed a night of sleep to do so. I was not that brave, but did catch up to it afterwards. So just so many things to compliment from that perspective. And I'm thankful that this was able to happen because I think it creates a blueprint potentially for other major cities, other major organizing committees to recreate at least an elite only race, even if the mass races can't happen yet, perhaps in early spring. And so that'll be something to watch for. What other races can now follow suit 
And, you know, potentially could London come back around in April, which is typically when their race happens, and produce another marathon in this way to allow the elite of the elite to go compete, potentially. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what this might mean for other elite-only races and other elite-only bubbles now that London has shown us the blueprint. So hats off to all all of that and hats off to the fans for staying engaged and for making this event too what it what it could be by watching so had to give proper kudos there now let's talk about these two races in turn i'm going to start with the men's race and then i want to finish with the women's race because so much on the women's side to talk about but on the men's race the great elliot kipchoge finally goes down he ran a solid race but in a pedestrian 206.49 for him and finished eighth. The first time he's lost a marathon after 10 consecutive victories since 2013, where he finished second in Berlin. So just an amazing run for Kipchoge. It's hard to know what happened on this day. And I think there are a few things that you could potentially point to Kipchoge himself certainly wasn't making any excuses. He just simply said, look, it wasn't my day today. But instead of lamenting that, it's probably better to recognize how impressive it was for him to have such a streak of victories with seemingly no chinks in his marathon armor. And yet finally, he showed that he's somewhat human, although his time of 206 on a cold and wet day in London is still really, really impressive. And it's impressive that he was able to hang in there. We could point to a few things. Obviously, the weather conditions weren't ideal. It was raining the entire time. It was windy. It was cold. And that may have affected certain athletes. Kipchoge was certainly shivering in his post-race interviews. So I don't know if potentially that affected him. He also said he had some sort of weird ear blockage that he began experiencing in the race that was causing some issues for him. Again, we don't know exactly what that means or what that was, but that was clearly making him off his game for whatever reason. And yet he still made it pretty much 24 miles before he fell away from that lead pack. And so it's impressive. I also wonder to what extent the pacing had potentially an impact on him. The Pacers were supposed to go out in a in a 101 first half, and yet they went out close to 103, which for Kipchoge is pretty quote-unquote slow for a marathon. And so I wonder if because those Pacers didn't go out at the pace they wanted and there were times when Kipchoge was seemingly signaling to them to pick up the pace, that somehow that threw him off his rhythm, threw him off, threw him off his game, because he was running a little bit slower than what he typically runs in the first half of a marathon, certainly recently. And so maybe that had him a little bit out of rhythm from his normal marathon pace cadence, which, and I think all of us runners can attest to that. Sometimes if you're a little bit slower than the groove, than the groove you're used to, then that can be a little bit more work for you than if you find that perfect groove, that MGP pace that com- that comes most comfortable. So potentially that caused him to get out of rhythm, maybe use a little bit too much energy early in the race and he didn't have it later. We'll never know. But I think we all know 
that impact of having that marathon day go not as planned because it seems to happen fairly frequently for the the humans among us where just for whatever reason things go poorly you have an issue nutrition goes wrong weather goes wrong something goes wrong out of your control that affects you on the day and the fact that Kipchoge had seven straight years of good days is probably more impressive than anything we could say about what happened to him in London this past weekend so all we've got all we can do really is is bow down to the goat of marathoning in Kipchoge and celebrate what he was able to accomplish. It was also incredibly impressive that he still stayed in there, still finished. Yes, he was eighth. Yes, it wasn't what he expected, but he seemed to give all to the line and give respect to the other racers in that way. Shura Katata, who ended up winning, said afterwards that Kipchoge is still the king. He is our king of marathoning and nothing will take away from that, even though this result wasn't what he wanted. And so I think that's still true. It'll be interesting to see how he bounces back from this. He did say that his stated goal was to win the Olympics next year. And so we'll have to see how he bounces back, but I certainly wouldn't bet again against Kipchoge because of one bad day. So hats off to Kipchoge. We also, as it relates to Kipchoge, you have to quickly mention that Bekele, of course, dropped out of the race before it even started. I predicted that he would DNF, and in fact, he was a did-not-start, claiming a calf injury would prevent him from having his best race. And so that's interesting. I know the conspiracy theories out there, conspiracy theorists out there believe that potentially he was ducking Kipchoge or perhaps just not in the fitness level to compete and if that's the truth, then it's better to potentially not start and not show people that than drop out during the race. And I certainly think that's true. I think Bekele con- continues to seek good paydays. And it's better for him from a payday and appearance fee standpoint by not showing up and claiming injury than by getting out there and DNFing or losing perhaps but this is certainly a day where he would have potentially had a shot to beat Kipchoge and that was left on the side because of a calf injury perhaps or perhaps because he didn't want to face the failure with a lack of fitness potentially. We don't know. We'll never know. I think there was a, a journalist that said on Twitter that was following the race that Whenever these things happen with injuries, we never get the whole story. And I think that's probably true. We'll probably never know the whole story with Bekele. But either way, he did not show up at the start line, was a did not start. And we will live with still that question of can Bekele beat Kipchoge in a marathon? Who knows if we'll ever have the chance to see them line up head to head. I suspect another race will try to make it happen and we will see if it can happen, I still think Kipchoge is far and away a better marathoner than Bekele, and I don't see Bekele ever beating him in a head-to-head race. But who knows? That's my prediction. Perhaps you disagree. So had to mention those two. The head-to-head did not materialize. That was so touted leading up to this race. Now let's talk about the three men that did actually win this thing. 
and take the podium in a sprint finish. The top three separated by four seconds in what would become a slightly negative split race on the men's side. They went out in 102.54. Katata won in 205.41. And he showed exactly the reasons why I picked him to finish on the podium in my pre-race recap I perhaps or pre-race chat I probably didn't give him enough credit but he certainly showed that he deserves the credit because just like he has done in prior races particularly in New York a couple of years ago he was the aggressor late in the race that helped break up the pack of nine or so that were leading late in the race when Kipchoge still had connection to that group, he was the aggressor that pushed the pace and that made the splits happen. And while the second place Kipchumba was the one that would lead initially down the final straight, Katata is the one that seemed to have everybody on the ropes with his various surges and then would respond to Kipchumba's surge and ultimately pass him in the final 60 meters or so to win by a second over the Kenyan Kipchumba and Cisse Lima the countryman of Katata was third finishing a little bit back in 205.45 just four seconds back four separate four seconds separating those top three for an exciting sprint finish and so we just have to first raise our hat to Katata for putting this win together. He had yet to win a world major, has finished second a couple of times, has been an aggressor in many of those races, and was able to finally put it all together for this victory in what was exciting fashion. And of course, credit to those other top three for gutting it out all the way to the finish. And you know anybody who's run a marathon knows how hard it is to sprint at the end of a marathon. And so I'm sure we can all in some way Feel their pain for those that have towed the line for 26.2. But an exciting race, perhaps not as fast as some would have predicted. I think that was probably likely due to the weather, the wind and the rain and the cold and those mix of conditions didn't really lend itself to a particularly fast day, but still an impressive negative split for this top group. And again, impressive for Katata, who seemed to be the aggressor and who was able to deliver all the way to the finish line. So hats off to those three athletes for the top three. I also have to give full credit and hats off to the only American in the field, Jared Ward, even though he ran what would be a relatively slow time for him in 212 to finish 17th. You have to give him full credit because he only had eight weeks to prepare. You know, he said he was consistent training over the summer, but then didn't really make the commitment to London until eight weeks to go. Did a marathon cycle that was about half the length of his normal and had to make some sacrifices. His stated goal in the day was to try to PR in spite of that and to not get lapped. By the front group, he was able to accomplish one of those two things. He did not get a PR, but a 212 is still solid for marathon time. But he didn't get lapped by those leaders, so full credit on that. He had a rough day. He said this was as tough for him as his first marathon because he went out and PR pace running 64 
24 for the first half on sub 209 pace, but then ultimately faded with a positive split in the second half that probably was a bit of a death march for him, but still an impressive 212 for 17th overall. You know, it's, you know, and I know many will beat him up for that or say, oh, well, he didn't perform and 17th isn't good enough for him. But you have to remember, Kipchoge got eighth in this field. So it was a stacked field and many of the top athletes finished. But also, what it takes to be vulnerable and put yourself out there in a race where you know you're not fully prepared, that says a lot. He knew maybe he wasn't quite ready for a PR. He knew it was going to be hard to stand there and not get lapped. He knew he was going to be with the spotlight on him and on the world's biggest stage, you know, where you can't hide in this 2K plus loop. And yet he showed up and did it anyway. And while it may not have played out the way he wanted, I think there's a lot of courage in that, a lot of bravery in that, a lot of inspiration in that, that sometimes you just got to toe the line and see what happens, even if maybe you don't feel like you're as ready as you can be. So, my hat's off to Jared Ward for an impressive race in spite of the fact that it wasn't what he wanted. So there you go. That, those are some quick kudos, hats off on the men's side. Now we've got to turn to what was an amazing and fascinating women's race. I had this one correct in terms of number one, but was all wrong for the rest of my podium. And so we'll talk about that and break it all down. First of all, I just want to comment again on the fact that it was so nice, so cool, so refreshing that they had a separate time slot for the women's only race completely so that all attention could be devoted to that without the split screen, without the back and forth that sometimes leaves the women's race with less coverage or less focus in key moments than it deserves. And so the fact that they were able to start it in a completely independent window to me, is a blueprint that others should consider. I think Boston in particular is a race that could pull off something like this very easily since they have that typically later start, that 10 a.m. start for the elite men. You could easily start the women at 7.30 in the morning, get that race completely done before the men start, and have it have its own dedicated platform And if the women are already starting independently, then why not make this shift? I mean, especially, I mean, if you started them at 7.30, that's that's in some cases later, sometimes at a similar time than what other typical marathons start at. So it's not abnormal for the athletes to be starting a race that early. And yet you could give the, the women elite racers their own dedicated platform without the the issues of cutting back and forth between the two, I think that would go a long way to adding value to telling the stories of the women's race. But that may be an opinion of one. We'll see if other races follow suit because I do think it was well executed in London. So let's go through this in order perhaps of inspiration. First of all, we've got we have to give our hats off to Bridget Cosguy, who ended up winning very handily in this race. 
She ran a 218.58. And while she was challenged for a while by Ruth Chepengedich, the world champion, that would not last very long. And ultimately, she would run away with the win by more than three minutes. And so an impressive run for her. They were attempting to go after the women's only world record, which was 217.01. They came through halfway on pace, Kozgai and Chepengedich, but ultimately would slow pretty significantly in the second half. And, of course, more significantly for those that were behind, although Kozgai held it together fairly well overall. She would finish in 218.58 for close to a two-minute positive split. So not what you would want there, but still ended up with a three-minute victory. So Chepengedich had a much bigger positive split. And she was able to put together for yet another win. And now she's won four majors in a row, two Chicago's and two London's over the course of several years. And so she's starting to put it, put together a resume that rivals that of what Kipchoge was able to accomplish on the men's side. And so that's impressive in its own right to have that consistency over four straight majors. And it just proved that she'll be the clear favorite going into Tokyo next year and is going to be the favorite for any race that she lines up in in the coming years and months. So hats off to Kazgai for the victory, the sound and clear victory in this race and for putting together yet another major win. Behind her, Chepengedich fell apart pretty massively but still managed to hold on for third. We also have to mention Vivian Churyat, who was my pick for second, who ended up DNFing in this race. She tried to hang with the leaders for a while, but clearly just wasn't quite ready and ended up dropping out. I don't have a lot of details on exactly what happened with her, and I'm surprised that she dropped, but who's who's to say? I know it was hard for many athletes to show up fully ready and fully fit given the uncertainty of the last six months. So perhaps she succumbed to that. Now let's talk about the Americans in the field. I'm going to start with Molly Seidel because I want to save talking about Sarah Hall for last. But Molly Seidel ran a two-minute plus PR, 215.13 in what seemed to be the most even splits on the women's side. She came through in 112.26. She ran 225.13 for a, just a 20-second or so positive split and seemed really strong, really consistent the entire way. You know, I mentioned in my my, pre, my pre-show that it would be really interesting to see how she handled this type of a race, a very different race than what she ran in Atlanta we had pacers in this race, and hats off to to Ailish McColgan, the British, typically 1,500 to 5,000-meter athlete who ended up at the last minute on the pacing team for the 225 group who carried, carried Molly through just over 17 miles. So kudos to, to Ailish for th- that job and showing up and jumping in as a last-minute pacer and going ultimately, I think, four miles longer than she thought she would. But 
But Molly, you know, this was a paced affair on a flat course, two very different equations from what she had in Atlanta. She also had no fans here in London to cheer on. And yet in Atlanta, obviously the fans were crazy and she was running through scream tunnels almost the entire way. So a very different experience. And to see her handle all of those variables, including the uncertainty of training over the last six months, to see her handle all of those variables is really, really impressive to run 225. Also really impressive. That puts her ninth on the all-time U.S. women's marathon list. So now she's a top 10 American all-time in only her second race in perhaps what was slightly less than ideal conditions here in London with the rain and the cold and the wind. So I think that bodes very well for Molly's future in marathoning. And I think as Americans, we, we can be a very excited about that next generation coming because Molly's only 26 years old and to have already moved to the marathon and to already having to be having success, I think bodes well for what's to come with Molly. So hats off to her for running an amazing, amazing race, well-paced, even splits and getting it done with that PR. All right. Now we have to turn to the great American finish with Sarah Hall finishing second and having her moment down the stretch. She ran a 2.22.01 to earn just about a 20-second PR. Still solidifies her position in that sixth fastest American of all time on the list. But the way she did it in this race is everything we have to talk about, which is, first of all, she went with the leaders early on. Ended up, I think she was three seconds back of the lead pack at the first 5K. So she was in touch when they started a little bit slower than I think what they had planned in their first 5K. But then in their second 5K, they really took off and really started to press for that women's only world record. Sarah knew that was too much for her, so she backed off. But that put her in no woman's land for most of the race and especially that middle section where she was gapped by the leaders and really had to find her own rhythm. She talked about in the post-race post about how it was really hard for her to stay focused and not be disappointed or beat herself up as she was running solo for the rest of the race because she said she was running a little slower than she wanted, wasn't in contact with the lead and felt like at some points that what she was trying to accomplish on the day was slipping away from her. But instead of letting her thoughts get the better of her, she switched, as she talked about in her post, to a framework of gratitude, just being thankful for being there, focus on what she could do in the moment. And then she began to gradually catch some of those leaders as they fell off. And and I suspect that the 2K course probably helped her here because she was able to, to most likely get a view of what was happening with her competitors that you necessarily you can't necessarily get on a standard course. So hopefully that helped her that helped her stay in contact and stay focused on what was coming back to her. But she still had to stay in it, stay focused, and keep believing. And she gradually began to catch people and ultimately was able to catch. Ruth Chepengedich in that final straightaway 
where she was able to, if you've seen the video, just have an unbelievable kick down the home stretch as she blasted that final 100 meters in what looked like a 1500 meter style kick in order to earn her second place and get this position on the podium in London is is pretty unheard of for an American. I mean, typically, if an American is going to be in contention, it's going to be at a race like New York or Boston where you don't have pacers, where you have a course and potentially weather conditions that might create some dynamics that open things up from just the track race that Berlin and London tend to be. And so for Sarah to be there, to stay in it, and to gradually work her way through this field and earn second in London is unbelievable. She's 37 years old and has been doing this and training for this literally since she was in high school. And to have it pay off 20 plus years later, all of that work is truly unbelievable and truly inspiring. You know, she burst into tears practically at the finish line. She was crying in many of the photos that I saw of her in the finishing area. She got choked up when she was talking about in her post-race comments. And, And you just know that that's, that that emotion and obviously I, I can't know exactly what she was feeling, but, but I can imagine that that emotion is just all of that work and all of that belief and thinking about all those times that she almost quit or almost maybe turned away from the marathon because she wasn't having the success that she wanted, but almost shifted careers, maybe, maybe hung up her flats and, and spikes because she was, you know, she was that athlete coming out of high school and college that everybody thought would have this amazing career. And ultimately, Ryan eclipsed her early on in her professional career and, and was the one that was having those those big moments. And Sarah, but yet Sarah continued to grind, has competed at almost every distance from 1500 to the marathon, has amazing breadth, has done some things in US road races, but haven't hasn't had that that crowning moment on the world stage at the top of the top that she deserves for what she's been able to do and put in in her career and to have it happen here. I just imagine she's thinking about all those moments and all those miles where she's going solo or just riding on the bike, putting in the work to try to earn this spot. And I'm sure she was also thinking about the doubts that came up in the race itself that she was able to, to push aside and keep rolling in order to earn that second place finish. And it's just, it's so cool. So inspiring, so unbelievable yet believable at the same time that you you just can't help but latch onto it. And so we have to, we have to do that and to really look at Sarah as just such a strong and true inspiration for all of us, because no matter what your goals are, if you just keep lining up and Sarah said it in her post-race comments, she said, look, this is where finally my preparation met opportunity. And she's had a lot of times when preparation didn't meet opportunity. She had a disappointment in the trials where she didn't get what she wanted back in February, but she kept working, kept 
getting out there. And even though she didn't know if she'd be able to race this fall because of the pandemic, she kept working and this opportunity presented itself. And then her preparation was there and she got that second place spot. And so major hats off to Sarah for this. I'm so happy, so proud and excited as an American to see it happen. Just really, really cool, really inspirational. And I think all of us can take that inspiration. All of us that have goals can take that inspiration and just keep working towards them. Now, we do with Sarah's Sarah's results, and I promise to finish on a high note, but we do with Sarah's result have to mention an interesting nuance, which is that she was wearing a prototype ASICs that seems to be the latest ASICs version of the carbon plated, you know, thicker foam shoes. It was a prototype, which is technically against the rules as it's written for World Athletics. But she was able to get an exception because her shoes did meet the geometry provided in the rules, but it wasn't made available broadly yet. And she got that exception based on apparently the fact that we're in a pandemic and Shoe companies haven't been able to necessarily provide the availability for shoes that they normally would because of because of challenges with manufacturing around the pandemic. And so she did get an exception from World Athletics to use this prototype sort of Alpha Fly equivalent shoe. And you know, by all accounts, it seemed to have worked and helped her. I know that there will be, there was a lot of talk right after, about what was she wearing? What was she wearing? Again, she did get approval from World Athletics. I think that opens up potentially a can of worm for World Athletics to potentially grant other exceptions down the road to prototype shoes, which is, I think, a slippery slope that we don't necessarily want to go down. But it is what it is. So that is something we have to mention and then ultimately watch to see how World Athletics will enforce their new shoe rules down the road, you know, whether or not Sarah could have run 222 in different shoes, I don't know. That's irrelevant. I know that Chep and Gedich and, and Cosguy were wearing Nike versions of that. So, and by all accounts, you know, she got approval from World Athletics, so we can't fault her for that. If anybody is at fault here, it'd be World Athletics for making an exception to their rule. But again, just want to mention that because it is an important detail something to watch for future races it doesn't take any way anything away in my mind to what sarah was able to accomplish and to the inspiration that she brings us all so hats off again to sarah for that and as i wrap this episode i just want hopefully this race to bring us all a little bit of hope you know, and again, I know for those everyday runners out there, it's not this type of race is something that seems very specific to the elite world. And and because of the boundaries they're able to put on the size of the field with these elites and because of you know, this is this is their day job and, and you know, it's easier to obviously implement certain boundaries and rules and, and create a bubble for a race like this, for this to happen. And so understand, I understand how some might 
not find inspiration in an event like this happening or, or not find hope in an event like this happening because it just seems so different from what you're doing yourself. I understand that. But what I would say to that is push beyond that thought process and into the hopeful side of this conversation to the glass half full side of this conversation. One to embrace the inspiration found in these athletes that competed from Sarah Hall who fought through to achieve a massive goal and a massive result after 20 plus years of work and who was able to finish and dig so deep at the end of this race that we were all inspired by that kick finish. So from that to the, the Bridget Cosguy, the one who did what she was supposed to do, who won the race as the favorite, to Katata, who has been the bridesmaid in races and who hasn't quite had that top of the podium result that he's wanted, but has pushed forward, has challenged, has fought, has been the aggressor in races, and for it to finally happen for him, that's inspiring. For Kipchoge to not have the day he wanted and yet still finish well and strong and nobly, that is sometimes the marathon that that some of us face, you know, when for whatever reason it's not your day and yet still being able to salvage your best on that day. That's what Kipchoge showed us on this day. To Ward, who didn't have anything close to a PR, but who showed up knowing he was a little bit unprepared, still put himself out there, still went for it. And yes, didn't have the result he wanted, but there's so much inspiration in just the fact that he swung and tried. To Molly Seidel, the the young marathoner who who has so much potential and who could have walked into this environment and been overwhelmed but wasn't and and showed up and got it done and PR'd in spite of very different circumstances from her first marathon who has a lot of hope in the future in her career. There's so much inspiration to go around from this. So take that and whatever part of it relates to you, latch onto it, apply it in your own running. But also the other side of that, the fact that they were able to pull off this bubble style race Yes, it's very different if you're applying that to a mass race, but I can tell you in Texas, you know, there's a marathon in Bryan College Station that's happening potentially in December and they're, you know, a decent sized race, more than 2,000 athletes and they believe that they're going to make it happen and are putting a lot of unique and creative things in place in order to make an event a mass event happen in a safe way. And so I think that while it may be a little bit still before we have races as we knew them, there will be in the spring races that can happen based on the creativity of races like London and of small races that are happening even now all across this country by being smart and safe and just being creative about how it can happen. So I think there's hope that we'll have something close to normal in terms of races again because of the creativity of the running community and our racing community. And that gives me inspiration as well to keep doing work, to keep training so that I can be ready when those do those races do come back. So hopefully you'll take away some hope from this London event. That's my hope for you. And so I'll wrap it with that message and we'll get this up 
today. So thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until my next episode, which will come on Monday, we will talk to you then.